I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University. And I'm Jenna Spinelli from Penn State. You're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. Well, uh, hey, welcome, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And uh, Mordecai, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, to kick things off, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about where you work, what you do. It seems like you have a lot on your plate. So excited to hear <laughs> all about it. Well, glad to be here with you all. So uh, Dr. Mordecai Brownlee uh, and uh, Service Vice President of Student Success at St. Phillips College in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we take pride in the fact that we are the only uh, community college in the nation that is a historical black college and Hispanic serving institution. Uh, also serve as an adjunct faculty member for Morgan State University, uh, where I teach uh, social justice and community college at the uh, master's level and teach undergraduate for the University of Charleston uh, School of Business and Leadership. And I'm also the uh, uh, columnist for a higher ed columnist for EdSurge. So uh, excited about uh, the work that I'm able to do to support other uh, educators and advance the academy. That's amazing. The, yeah, the power of and. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you into this world um, of higher ed? Like, uh, how did you how did you end up where you are? Wow. So I will tell you that I tested at developmental levels um, when it was time for me to to uh, enter uh, college. I think a, a large part of that is based on my background. I was raised by a single mother uh, who's an educator. Uh, and she made a lot of sacrifices to make sure that we made it. Uh, but there was a lot of moves associated with those sacrifices, lots of moves. Um, um, and so uh, when it, like I said, when it came time to go to college, you know, there were some decisions I made. Uh, part of one of those decisions was working full time and attempting college at the same time uh, because I wanted to alleviate those pressures from my mother, those concerns or fears you have to pay for school. Uh, and so to test that developmental levels also was kind of like, what do you mean? I can take classes and, and, and I can have a high school diploma, but that doesn't mean I'm college ready. And to make matters worse, I failed developmental math. So I was done at that point. I mean, I, now it could have been the fact that my, my teacher sounded like Kermit the Frog. I don't know. Uh, but I, I didn't make it. And so what happened was I was working several jobs to make 40 hours a week. One of those jobs said, hey, sorry, we need to hire some full time staff. And we we uh, I needed to find 20 hours of work. And someone said, well, you can work as a work study at the community college. So I signed on for work study. Ended up helping out in the theater department, and he started teaching me how to run lights and sound, and how to do makeup and stuff. I had a, I had a kick with that because I would you know, do all this makeup on my face and make it look like some I got into fight, and I had a good time with that. But then I started helping out over the cafeteria and academic success, and uh, helping over in rec sports, and started to realize you can make a living, really helping others and supporting others, and 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 uh, supporting them in that manner. And so that for me was the light bulb change moment. I was able to earn my associate's degree and moved on and, and began a life, in, uh, residential life for those that have worked in, in uh, residential life and housing. Uh, and uh, it, it just took off from there. And so now just have the opportunity of serving. And it's just an amazing opportunity to serve as an educator, uh, just to empower the lives of others and spend your time doing that. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you've been um, perhaps teaching remotely for, for a little while if you're yes. based in Texas, but teaching for, for Morgan State and, and other places. So 
Uh, you know, you were doing this whole online thing maybe before the pandemic, before a lot of other <laughs> faculty were were doing that. So, um, you know, what uh, what 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 advice? What did you in the and that 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 idea of serving? Um, you know, what were you able to bring to your colleagues who maybe did not have that experience and were kind of struggling to you know to to adapt or perhaps maybe still are. Well, you know, the the very interesting thing about the pandemic was is that it th there was no starting runway. It just hit and it happened. And very quickly, all of us had to pivot. And I'm saying all of us being educators, K-12 and higher education had to very quickly pivot into spaces that they had not been in previously. Right. And so um, I think that part of the grace that had to be shown and, and uh, continues to be shown is, is that there were many educators that weren't trained in this online space on how to engage or the best practices or high impact practices on how you create community and online spaces. Um, and so, you know, that grace had to be shown students. I, I just want to commend students uh, because they were continuing to pursue their academics in the midst of a global pandemic, right? We had at that, especially when it first happened, we're talking March, April of last year, no one knew what the future held. Um, and so it, it was one of those, you know, if you're still going to pursue your education, the very least that we could do is to engage and do the best that we can. Now, with that said, you know, further answer your question, I would say that it's so important that within within the academy, we share our um, our, our successes as well as our learned lessons, uh, because we all learn how to do better. We all learn how to go beyond the weekly post, how to go beyond, you know, you know, feeling completing the A, B, C or D. You know, how do I really create an engaging space? where you feel vested in your learning experience. Uh, and that's more than just the black and white of the matter. That's just the foundation, right? So it takes a commitment from the instructor uh, to create a space that is going to be engaging for the student where they really are taking something away and it's not a checkbox experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's some creative ways to do that. Uh, yeah, and, and you, you mentioned that you teach courses in social justice at yeah. the at the 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 graduate level. So how do you think about creating communities and spaces to to teach subject matter like that where students feel comfortable maybe being vulnerable or you know sharing things that might be difficult to talk about if you're not in the same room together? How has it been different this year not just because of the online aspect but also now is the time of social justice? In, in the country. So. Absolutely. You know, here's the thing I'll tell you is, is that I'm, I'm blessed in that the the class that I teach is for educators, right, to teach them how to create those spaces and the awarenesses that they should have um, at their respective institutions um, on 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 the work that they should be doing uh, within their their learning spaces to ensure that everyone is succeeding and that everyone feels welcome and calling out injustices in a manner that will remove barriers for students. Now, I will say this, you know, as we think about George Floyd and as we think about so many others uh, who have been impacted um, more recently, especially through the pandemic, uh, you know, I will say this and it's twofold. Number one is a parent, right? I remember when that George Floyd matter first happened, I have a six-year-old son, uh, a three-year-old little girl, and I remember, you know, when it first hit the news and we were just all learning about it, I forgot that that element of and I wrote an article article about this as well. That as I'm watching this on the, the television screen and this is unfolding, I'm forgetting the fact that my son is right next to me watching this as well. 
And so I, I totally lost myself in this moment of, of watching that and had to explain over a number of weeks to my son, well, what was the police officer doing? Because I have, we have family members that are police officers. We have friends that are police officers. I hang around several police. I used to work as a, a police dispatcher at one point in time. So to explain to my son that, oh my, you know, what did the officer do? Why, why are people upset at the officer, daddy? I had at that point to really get into a space on how do I educate, inform, um, provide support and assurance in a way that doesn't taint his view of self or the view of the world. Um, and that was a real delicate balance, right? Now, I will tell you that as an educator, I think it's so important as we talk about social justice that we create engagements for awareness. And I think that the awareness piece is the foundational piece. We have to all understand where we are in society, who we are in society, how we are productive citizens in society, and how everyone has value in society. I think that once we can do that work and set the tone of that work, then we get into some of the more mature standpoints of social justice. You just can't jump, in my personal opinion, into social justice work and you haven't done awareness work. Uh, and depending upon where you live in the country and your backgrounds and, and all of that, that plays into your perspective and your ideas and on social uh, uh, realities and, and uh, things, it's harder to get into social justice conversations because individuals don't have an appreciation of value of others. Um, and so, but once that is set and that foundation is set, you can really do some amazing things. And I, part of working with my students is how do you get to that point of maturity so you can actually get into the social justice work and you can raise the level amongst your colleagues on understanding what all goes into that work where everyone is valued. Um, that sounds like a class that that, that um, everyone should take. It's <laughs> just uh, regardless of if you're an educator or not, just so much, so much good stuff human. there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, how are you thinking about like what, so, you know, given, given all of these, these ongoing conversations and, you know, things, things change, uh, you know, um, unfortunately it seems like more often than not, we're hearing stories about other, other police involved incidents happening in, happening in different parts of the country. So how much do you change what you're doing based on what's going on in the, in the news? Or are you sort of like you were saying, like down at like the, the more fundamental level and not necessarily tied to a particular situation that, that might be going on? Well, you know, I'll, I'll just say my own personal story, right? So, you know, I talked about a lot of moving around growing up, but in, in several of those spaces, especially by the time that I was in uh, high school and, um, you know, making my way into college, I, I was in P, as they say, PWI spaces and in, in, in primary white institutional spaces where I was the one of only, you know, 10 African-Americans or one of five African-Americans. And so trying to find my place in society now, there's a bit more sensitivity to it. But I remember coming up to where that was really hard. And there was things that I knew I was experiencing that once I would voice them, it was not validated. And so now I'm left saying, am I crazy? You know, why am I the only one feeling like I am experiencing this? And I can't be like, I can't be making this up. And so now we've created some of those spaces where people through either race or lifestyle can create spaces through affinity group supports or various means in which we are able to validate their experiences. And I think that's the key, right? As as we are you know, going through these experiences and, and experiencing the world together and these crises together, we have to create spaces for our students to cope, to open, to share, 
uh, and then heal. And and that can't be done in a checkbox initiative at the respective institution saying that we're committed to diversity, equity, inclusion. Come here for this 15 minute program. It doesn't work that way. You do more damage than good treating this like a checkbox item. But if you're truly committed to student success and student inclusion, inclusive excellence and diversity, equity, inclusion, you understand that you as these unfold, you have to immediately answer. Uh, and provide space for your students to open up and share and cope and heal. Uh, and a lot of that work can be done through restorative justice. Um, uh, but but there's some some creative spaces that that are very effective. Uh, but, you know, I will tell you this as well. I personally have learned that in a lot of times it's not until a student gets to college that they were ever given the opportunity to have such a space. So you're talking about years and years and years of compounded experiences and perspectives and thoughts and opinions that now get a chance to be unleashed into a space that's welcome and a lot of transformative work can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been, um, I've been experienced. Well, I experienced that myself um, being uh, I, I'm biracial Asian American. Okay. Um, and yeah, growing up being the only Asian kid in your entire school, like that is um, definitely yeah, it's definitely, I feel the kind of experiences you do, although I know my experiences were probably completely different than yours. And maybe but, not, right? And maybe not, yeah. But one of the things that I've learned over the past, like, six months uh, to a year, um, you know, talking with our students, um, you know, going to these these open sessions where where everyone can, you know, have this, these safe spaces to talk and to to share their experiences it it's it's been eye-opening for me to see um really the the spectrum of experiences um for for african-american students for asian-american students for hispanic students um and even for folks who um like uh, like uh professors and staff members that have immigrated to the United States and how their experience of racism is so starkly different than mine because they come from a place where they were the majority and they've never experienced what it's like to not be in the majority. And then they come here and they kind of expect to be treated like everyone else and they're not. And it's, it, it's, it is an experience for them. Um, and, and it's, it, you know, I've always kind of had my own experiences kind of kept inside and mm. not something that I've ever talked about. And this isn't a session about Logan's feelings, but I totally understand now in a way that I have never understood before exactly what you're saying. Um, and I think that's how change happens. Um, I don't think actually, no, that is not how change happens. That is how change begins. There you go. There you and, go. And, um, you know, I I can say that you know I, I hope that these conversations and you know these feelings and 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 the 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 shared humanity that everyone is starting to experience with each other is going to do something. Um, I've been holding out for that feeling for years, and um, maybe maybe one day. <laughs> 
No, and, I, and you know, and I thank you for sharing that, man. And, and I know this is for the sake of a podcast, but as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's up to us to create these safe spaces for one another, right? It's the reason why I say social justice is the, if you look at it from a spectrum standpoint, it's at the far end of the spectrum. You have to mature to the point of social justice because in order to begin to fight the fight effectively, you have to be at a place to where you have a sense of self and in my personal opinion, healing so it doesn't turn into rage. Right. Because what happens is, is if you haven't coped and healed in your own spaces and now you start to advocate in the spaces of others that either triggers or compounds in a way that may turn out to be unhealthy in that space, which is the reason why I think it's so important that mentorship is key, especially as we look to the youth who are watching this. They're upset about it. They have uh, more diverse backgrounds and friends and exposures. So now, you know, they're ready to fight in some of these cases. And I've had to deal with some students that are dealing with absolute outset rage. They're ready to fight. And so how do we turn that rage into productivity um, and in a way that's going to be effective? That way we do more positive than damage. We do more good than bad in this space. Um, but I think that also that that element of social justice is, is looking at the theories. When you go into theories like critical race theory, you really need to be ready for that, because if your mindset is not at a point of maturity in the spectrum of awareness and appreciation of others, when you start looking at terms like whiteness, you'll get lost in that. If there's no foundation of that, because what will happen is the individuals begin to look at that like blame, like we're out to blame. Uh, Caucasians and whites. And that's not the case. It's understanding and giving respect to the social constructs of what's happened historically over time. So as we talk about poverty or the lack of opportunity, or we talk about bigotry and prejudice, we can get down to the roots and understand that we are a part of the solution. But again, that's the reason why I say it's a spectrum. But, you know, man, God, now educators are really being trained in these spaces. But when we were going through school, <laughs> good luck. Right. You hope to have made it. And now I think it's so important as us being adults that we heal, that way we can effectively support and help others and, and really uh, be able to do some good work. Yeah. So so speaking of rage and doing more harm than good, I want to talk about Twitter for a second. Um, yeah. I was reading uh, one of your uh, Ed Surge pieces from earlier this year, and you sort of laid out your philosophy of, of digital leadership, borrowing from Josie Alquist, who is a, a guest on this show as well. Um, so I'm just, can you just talk a little bit about how, how you approach that? I think sometimes it's, it's tempting to just go on Twitter and spout off about whatever you want to vent about that day, especially around some of these, these, you know, race, you know, related conversations when you're so frustrated because there is so much bad stuff happening out there, but it seems like you are, are amazing at turning that into like putting a more positive message out into the world, but in, in an authentic way, it's not like you're just trying to gloss over things. And so how did you, how did you come to that? And, and, and how do you, you know, kind of just continually put that into practice day in and day out? Which, and I, I appreciate you acknowledging that, you know, and, and by the way, Josie is amazing. She is amazing. She's amazing. She's a gift. Um, what I would say is, is that I made a decision uh, several years ago that when I decided to engage in social media, the purpose why I engaged in social media was to create another outlet for students to get a hold of me if they needed me. So it, it started there. I started to engage through social media 
probably about seven, eight years ago, I created that Twitter account because I was moving into a role that was um, at an institution where I wanted to use that as a as a means to engage students. And it turned out to be extremely effective. Um, there were times where students would reach points of crises um, and the students didn't send me an email. They sent me a direct message. They sent me a DM. Um, and, and I knew that at that point I was establishing myself with a level of trust with my students. And it was a very, very effective tool. When I moved on from that institution, I had to ask myself, well, what do I want to do with this online space? And it was to continue to encourage other educators as well as still be available to my students. But I was moving into a non-residential space. So it was, OK, what is this going to look like? It won't necessarily move and operate the same. It's with that intentionality that I still engage through social media and understanding that I saw it always as an educational platform, always. And I always saw it as a means in which I can provide a perspective uh, in a way that can is not about, as you said, glossing over, but it's providing a more meaningful perspective. Because when it's all said and done, no matter what the situation is or that we have to wake up and fight another day. And what does that fight look like? Because we have to ensure that the good guys and ladies win. And so what does it look like? Uh, to ensure that success and that encouragement and that motivation and that inspiration and that reflection or causing for us to get into spaces to where we can reflect with our loved ones, our students, our spouses, ourselves, and be able to become increasing, uh, increasingly more productive in our citizenship uh, as well as educators. And so that was my intentionality behind that. And so that article in itself, uh, Jenna, was to say, embrace this responsibility. Right. And so those of you all that may treat these social media outlets as just uh, um, <laughs> these these uh, venting points, it can come back and bite you. Right. And so there are ways to vent, but to do so respectfully. But if you think that, especially in this digital age, that you can just vent and and get away with it, uh, if it's disrespectful or uh, against the mission of your institution or the culture of your institution, um, we live in a day and time of a cancel culture and you will get canceled. Uh, and so, you know, we have to bring that to the forefront. Yeah. So, so, I mean, what do you, what do you say to people out there who, you know, maybe, maybe take, take a different view and say, no, like I, I should be able to, to say what I want the, you know, standard kind of free speech arguments that, that are, are so prevalent these days. Um, it, how might you, encourage someone to to think about things differently or or is that even i guess a a a worthwhile conversation to have in the in the long run i think it's a way to do it in a manner and so who who wants to be told what to do and i think that's the reason why i wrote the article because for those that would say free speech well let's go back and look at case law there are people that have lost their jobs um and that in understanding the pickering conic test there's some people that when I started having the Pickering Connick conversation, they had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. But if you haven't went and done the actual, not you, and understood you, but if, if, if individuals who have not done the research, then you can get into a space where your livelihood is now in jeopardy. And so it's to say, be responsible and understand that if you're going to get into a space and open up a door, be ready for what, what may walk through the door. Um, and, and so there, there are fellow others through, through either, um, you know, in business and industry, as well as educators, that the whole free speech has not saved them. 
And so that's not to say I'm against free speech. And then some folks may even hear what I'm saying and say, is he not in support of free speech? Absolutely. So is the United States of America. However, all I'm saying is, is, is that um, we have to acknowledge as educators that we have a platform uh, and we have to be very sensitive to that platform. We have been given an opportunity day in and day out to be paid to advance a mission, uh, institutional mission and enlighten and empower the lives of students and to do so in a manner that that uh, does not um, uh, you know, create spaces of bias, prejudice, bigotry, hatred. Right. And so no one I do not believe that that any educator should be able to spread bigotry, hatred, bias, prejudice on their social media platforms, but then go into the classroom in the spaces in which they're supposed to be creating environments for all to succeed and be able to believe that they can do that without bias, prejudice or hidden bigotry. I just have the hardest time believing that you just shut that off the moment that you get out of your car and walk into a facility that is a part of, of being with you. And so we need to create more inclusive uh, educators and, and, and folks who understand the responsibility associated with this work. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, and, and you know, and it just, it doesn't just fall into free speech. It also falls into, um, you know, academic freedom too. Um, that's something that thing, especially when they take what they're doing on Twitter into the classroom um, or what they're saying. And you know, I myself am not one that is for, you know, quieting voices or, you know, stopping dissent. But at the same time, you have to find ways of being, you know, decent to other people. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think there's a way to make your argument good or bad, you know, and, and still be respectful to how, that other people have differing opinions. Um, and you know, the, the thing that, the thing that drives me nuts about the internet these days is, um, generally just the polarization is it's a polarization that you can't get away from. Everything now is polarized and everything from, you know, an illness to, uh, to vaccines, to whether you should, you know, wear a mask in respect of others. Like all of this stuff is just so, you know, polarized <laughs> and, and it just, it's very frustrating. And, and it's one of those things that I wish um, folks would remember. And, you know, I, I grew up myself as someone who's always been one that, you know, you should respect others. You should be polite to others um, and you should care about what other people say and listen to them. Um, but at the same time, it feels like that's lost these days. Um, and, and maybe that's, maybe I'm weird because I was taught that way, <laughs> but you know, I, common decency, you know, when people started taking common decency and calling it political correctness, yeah, that, that when it crossed into that world, I, I just, it's frustrating. And, you know, I, I, so I, I agree with you so much and I just, I don't know. A lot of this week has been frustration for me because there's been a lot of stuff happening, um, which is why I'm a little quieter than usual. It's been a crazy week. Um, but you know, you were talking earlier about, um, serving, um, Mm. folks and, and, and how service is so important. And, you know, this year, 
has been so crazy. And um, I was able to watch, we, we actually had graduation ceremonies this year and we were actually able to watch students graduate, which was amazing. They didn't, they stood up and waved at a camera socially distanced from each other <laughs> um, and their uh, diplomas will be mailed to them. But, you know, this is one of those years and, and with all of this happening and with all of the conversations that we've had, hard conversations, not just about health and wellness, but also, um, you know, you know, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice. I feel like this year, I feel like this year has meant more to me from a standpoint of serving our students and serving the people that I work with. Uh, than, than has ever happened before. I, I mean, I've, I feel this feeling. I'm tired. I'm really tired. But, you know, it, it's, and I feel like, I feel like this happening all across. And, and that's one of the things that um, really said something to me when we were talking earlier. But with that said, we graduate students. That's our job. Um, you do student success um, at St. Philip's College. And, you know, I was kind of wondering, what are you, what are what are the strategies that you all use to to make sure that students, especially you know where you are, um, you know Texas is an interesting place sometimes, um, especially with Hispanic students and Black students. Yeah. Um, how do you ensure that these students find the success that they need? And no yeah, offense so, to Texas. <laughs> no offense to Texas. No, I get it, right? So I would say that here, here's the, the unique uh, piece about San Antonio, Texas, for a lot of people who don't know. So San Antonio, Texas is the most impoverished metropolitan city in the country. Uh, it is also the most economically segregated uh, metropolitan city in the country. So it, you know, San Antonio surpassed Detroit on, on the index years ago. Um, and, and so it's those realities as well as understanding the political spectrum in Texas, as well as its proximity. Uh, to to uh, Mexico that creates this 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 unique uh, environment that uh, deals with a lot of various uh, factors all at once and they compound upon one another and it has some historical impressions as well that that it continues to bicker and fight and as well as evolve and revolutionize within itself. So to answer your question in terms of what do we do for students, we're number one, and this may sound very simple. Yet it is very it is very intentional. I won't say it's hard. It's just intentional work that must happen. That is, is listening to the voice of our students. All of our students are dealing with something. Some of those are shared. Some of those are unique. And I think it's so important, especially throughout the pandemic. And we were doing this work before the pandemic, which I think has really helped us to be able to pivot appropriately in this space, in this global pandemic, uh, to understand what their needs are. And in a lot of cases, as I talked about poverty, we already knew that poverty was our enemy. So when we started talking about having to teach online classes now at 100 percent, we knew the digital divide was going to be very real for us uh, because we knew that we had students that did not have broadband access. They did not have a home laptop Wi-Fi access. They did not have, in some cases, a roof over their heads. You know, pre-pandemic or before the pandemic, I call it B.C., right, before before COVID, um, you know, we had a commencement speaker who told his story and brought an entire coliseum. Uh, to their knees in tears as he told this story of, you know, being an African-American male, losing both of his parents to drug overdoses at various points, having to live on park benches and couch surf and would use the light of his cell phone to do his homework at night and still finish with a 4.0. 
So my, 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 my point is, is we knew who our students were. So we were all in in the approach of meeting their needs from an advocacy standpoint. So we were grateful for our partnerships with companies like Trellis and others who made emergency aid funds available to us. So as students were preparing to be evicted from their homes or their lights were being turned off or their cable, uh, their Internet access was being turned off uh, or gas was being turned off, that they were bringing us their bills and we would pay and fund their need immediately by the phone. We would would never exchange cash with the student, but we utilized the Trellis funds to be able to directly pay the bill. And that way students could stay in in class. And so it's very hard if you're making me choose between paying for my class or paying for my rent. Uh, That's a, you know, don't put me in this this situation. And I'm proud to say that 100% of the students that took advantage of those resources finished their programs. That's the beauty of it, right? So it's having these resources and knowing where you need to pivot based off the voice of your students that creates these effective programs. And that it's so important that we don't, as educators, get into this ego space of saying, I read an article and the article said that this would be good if I I do this. So let me do this. And you look to your students and you say, well, students, I read this. The researchers say this is good. So this must be good. And you've got to think it's good because they said it's good versus actually asking the student, is this good? Right. And so we've got to slow down and not try to get into these spaces where we need to validate our credentials and just ask the student, what do you need? And then it is our job and responsibility to clear the path and make it happen. And do you find that that helps uh, things like things like um, student retention and, and those types of things? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. And it comes down to the conversation uh, that we were just having about race and, 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 and um, you know, social justice. Everyone wants to feel valued. Everyone wants to know that you truly care for who I am or you're going to respect who I am. So that spectrum that 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 that, you know, that applies in various areas, including retention and persistence. If you don't create a learning environment where I feel welcomed or cared for, I will not continue. Or if I reach points of crises and the institution is not able to support me in those points of crises, then there's no way that I will stay on the pathway. Why? Because I've been put in, as they talk about the Maslow hierarchy, I now have to essentially survive. So I can never get to the point of self-actualization because I'm continually having to deal with survival situations. Yeah. And, you know, I think those experiences are also so helpful, you know, as as you were describing that, that commencement speaker, you know, I I thought about, um, you know, things that, that I might get frustrated about, or, you know, people that I know get frustrated about some, you know, to our point of, of talking about Twitter, right. Some little things online that really don't matter in the, in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, who are we to get frustrated about some online thing when here are all these other students who are trying so, so, so hard. And that's, that's just kind of humbling, I think, to, to what you were saying too, Logan, about um, trying to find that, that uh, humanity and, you know, just, just telling yourself sometimes that, you know, social media is not real life all the time anyway, or at least all, all aspects of it. But, you know, Jenna, I'll add this point too. Crit looks different now than it did years ago. In my personal opinion, I believe that there's some shared aspects of that, but what students are having to fight through and society is having to fight through in today, it's not the same fight as 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. So distractions look different, mm-hmm. right? So that social media space for some may be like, oh my gosh, how can that catch your attention? Well, if you're a digital native and you have been so exposed and real in that world, that world is real to you, you don't understand that that is another realm that is actually a part of your reality. 
So there are distractions in that space. And I think part of teaching students uh, and others and encouraging others is how do I dwell in this world with so many distractions, right? So many triggers. <laughs> there are so much going on. And then you add a pandemic on top of this and you still want me to smile. And I think that's the reason why mental health more than ever is one of those those points that we have to remove the stigmas at our college campuses, at our K-12 institutions, within our family and friend circles, because we all need help and we need to know how to cope in these spaces as well. Uh, and, and then the other thing that I've been trying to help and encourage friends uh, and my colleagues in is, is that through the pandemic, folks have found some interesting ways to cope in this time. Uh, and not everyone has done so uh, successfully or productively um, in, in a productive manner. And so some folks have taken on some bad habits just trying to get through this pandemic. And now as we're trying to come out of this pandemic, ensuring that those bad habits are shedding themselves. And so now we've had some compounded issues of some some other things that have now come up in this time. So more the reason why resources, mental wellness, all these are very critical now more than ever. Yeah, I was, uh, my wife works in student support um, and uh, uh, at Belmont. And, you know, we, 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 we've had talks about, especially in the times these days that, you know, student support, even before the pandemic and before all the, um, you know, all the discussions and the things that are happening right now was already hard. I mean, it was already a pandemic in and of itself. And then you add in, you know, you know, the racial injustice, you add in, you know, the pandemic, and then it's just, it's like a perfect storm. Like each of those things on their own would be enough to, to, to push people. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, she's had to, for sure, um, you know, uh, evolve. And I think, I think a lot of schools have had to evolve too, but I also feel like a lot of schools haven't realized that they need to evolve, especially when it comes to, especially when it comes to, to race and, and, and relations in that sense, just because, okay, let's, let's take it this way. Um, 10 years ago, well, actually 20 years ago, just simply there, um, we, we didn't have iPhones. We didn't have a constant stream of notifications coming in, like news notifications hitting us. Even like 10 years ago, we didn't have that. Like it was too new. Like we were just thought it was cool because we were on Twitter. Um, but now everything comes at us. We don't have to open up something to go look at it. It is sent to us straight. And for whatever reason, we turn that on and we want to know everything that's happening. And that in itself creates trauma <laughs> because back when I was a kid, when I was in high school, we would, you get the news in the morning and you get the news, uh, you know, in the evening. And then maybe you get a newspaper somewhere around in there. But now it just comes at you like you can't get away. And it's one of the things that our students were, were talking about in one of our sessions was, you know, you can't you they could not get away from the George Floyd video. They could not get away from it. And um, and, and the recent um, videos that have been released, body cam footage and all that kind of stuff for recent victims, they can't get away from it. They have to make themselves just not because it's it's traumatic to see someone who looks like you being killed. Um, and, and you mentioned this earlier with your son. Like it's it's just there's so much trauma that people don't think about. 
Um, and it's for me, I, it's, it's, it's been eye opening for me cause it's something that I never, I'd never really considered myself until I really thought about it. Um, and how much I've had to stop listening to podcasts about the news and how I've had to stop just listening to NPR, no offense, NPR station, I still give you money. Um, but I, I've had to just stop listening because I can't handle it anymore. I can't handle all the stuff. I have to watch Netflix now <laughs> and I have to play a video game. So yeah, it's the world's a different place. It is. A, I, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's better or worse. Oh, it's probably worse. Um, well, you know, and here's the thing too, right? I think that's now more than ever while we have to, encourage one another and train one another and, 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 and on how to live purpose-driven lives. Now this sounds for some, they're like, okay, where are you going with this Mordecai? Here's the thing with all what you've just said that the world offers. If I live in a manner to where I'm just dwelling every day in a space, there is so much that can be thrown at me that will either discourage me, uh, deter me, trigger me, uh, and then the ne- now I'm left in a worse shape than where I was before I even started my day. And so it's the reason why we have to live these purpose driven, mission driven lives and understand how do we create a, a a force field, mental force field around us to where we are prepared for what comes for the day. Because I can now, you know, turn on my television and, you know, God forbid, there's now another tragedy at another public area or a grocery store now. And now I'm fearful about whether or not I should go and pick up groceries for my own family. And so there's so much that's happening in our world today, or even being fearful to leave my children at a daycare facility because of now what the world is now telling me that happens at daycare facilities. And so it's one of those things to where there are so many interjections that are happening throughout the day that if you're not careful, more and more and more fear imparts itself and more and more triggers uh, are becoming more powerful within ourselves. We have to 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 really strengthen our internal uh, person uh, and mind in, in, in this world now more than ever to be able to know and teach our children, teach our students. How do you dwell in this space? Because it won't go away. If anything, it will continue to get worse. And I think that's when we talk about the whole free speech piece or the being being responsible with the content that you release to the world. There's enough garbage out there. Can you please be a part of the solution? Right. And being able to give positive content or an inspirational content or, or insightful, um, enlightening content to help somebody get through the day, because you never know if they were scrolling at 2, 3 a.m. and they needed some encouragement before they made a mistake. And it just so happened to be your tweet or your video or your picture, or your podcast that kept a life on this earth that night. Right. So there's so much that's happening that we have to figure out how to support one another and create these healthy spaces. And I, I think as institutions of higher learning in so many ways, it's our mission to help make that happen. That's one of those higher level serving purpose things that I think we forget sometimes because we get so bogged down in the the projects and the minutia and the all the things. So I, I think that's a good place to end the show on this week. Um, yes. Thanks, Mordecai, so much for joining us. This is a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you all for the time. I appreciate it. Listeners, head down to higher and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES Podcasts and this tweet. We love talking to you and don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Petrano and Logan Bishop and this episode was produced by the awesome Emma Haas. Uh, we're part of the Connect EDU network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.